Well, I assume you heard this during the announcements, but I want to re-highlight the invitation to come back to church on Christmas Eve. Uh, we have two identical services. Each will last under an hour. And um, one's at 5.30, one's at 7. And we would love for you to be planning, if, if you can, if your schedule allows and family and visits, whatnot, um, allows you to, if you come for that 5.30 one, it ends at 6.30, stay for another half hour. If you come for the 7, come a half hour early and just bring cookies, hang out in the cafe, and uh, enjoy the season together. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter we call Romans. It's in the New Testament, which is that part of the Bible that was written after Jesus came to earth. Letter, or Romans is a letter written to a church in the ancient city of Rome. It was a church full of people who are trying to do more or less what we're trying to do, to make sense of Jesus for our everyday lives. I'm going to be in chapter 8 of Romans, picking up right where Davis left off last week in his sermon, beginning in verse 28, and then I'll read through the end of the chapter. I'll just say at the outset of this sermon, uh, this sermon will not be one to give you tons of practical advice about how to do this or that in your life, but I do hope it encourages you. If you picture your heart like a huge bucket, uh, I hope this passage and this sermon just pours in encouragement and encouragement, encouragement, not till it hits the top full, but spills over even. Well, that's, that's my hope. But follow along with me as I read from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pray that God would be our teacher. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, not also with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you pray with me? Lord, earlier we sang the line, then sings my soul. Lord, there's a way to go about manufacturing emotion. But Lord, what I pray this morning is true for us is that the truth of the scripture, the proclamation of a gospel that as Lukeman read in the scripture earlier that was delivered as of first importance would be the thing that rises up in our hearts causing our souls to sing. And I pray that you would use the teaching of this passage to do that even more so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When our small group got together last week, uh, we talked for a few minutes. We're all sitting around at a kitchen table and we're just talking about family traditions around Christmas time. And I mentioned how when I grew up, uh, we always cut down our own Christmas tree. For me, it's like a favorite memory. And we've, we've continued to do that in the various places we've lived in, in our family. Um, in fact, if you were at our congregational meeting last week, so after the service, there was a, a short, short-ish meeting. And, uh, you know, I introduced Davis Yance to you as a, as a uh, potential new pastor elder of the church. And we we're going to talk about that and vote on that. And he's no longer potential. He, he was voted on that. But I said, I found out he has a fake Christmas tree in his living room. But I didn't want you to hold that against him as you voted. Because there's no scripture that I know of that teaches <laughs> you actually have to cut down a tree to be a mature Christian. It's just what we do at growing up. But a few weeks ago, an acquaintance connected, acquaintance of mine connected me with one of his acquaintances, and this person was looking for someone who could help co-author or be a heavy editor or maybe even a ghostwriter on, on this project because she had this compelling story to tell of God's faithfulness. And my friend, my acquaintance, thought I might be potentially helpful to this other person to see that project come to completion. I don't think I'll probably be the right person. But I did do a little research and listen to a television interview with this couple, this husband and a wife. And at one point in the story, as they're telling us, this is a Christmas tree uh, or Christmas season. And the, the, the dad, Scott of four, says to his family, let's just get in the car. Let's go get our tree. And they go to the Christmas tree farm and pull up to the shack. A little, you know, a little shack at the edge of the farm. Teenager says, how are you doing today? And the dad just says, we're doing awesome. And everybody in the car laughed and they just pulled into the Christmas tree farm. Now, if you're sensing, I'm not telling you all of the story, I'm not. The full story was a year before that, the husband, Scott, had started to lose his coordination. And they had just gotten the results back that, and told his family uh, that he had ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And they had wept so long and so hard that when they got to the shack at the edge of the Christmas tree farm and the teenager says, how you doing? All they could do was laugh because they had no more tears. They had used them all. 
We call Christmas the most wonderful time of the year, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. In the Christmas hymn we sang earlier in the service, O Come All Ye Faithful, there's that line about being joyful and triumphant. Joyful and triumphant. And one of the reasons we chose to wed together joyful and triumphant and Romans 8 during the Christmas season is because I think Romans 8 gives us the deeper joy and the more gritty triumph that is offered to us in the Christian message of hope we call the gospel. Romans chapter 8, when rightly understood, is big enough and sturdy enough to hold you when you've cried so many tears, all you can do is laugh. In the background of this passage in Romans 8 lurks the fear that God's love can't coincide with our sufferings. That either our sufferings in our life indicate God doesn't love us or the sufferings in our life that come alongside and sometimes come right on top of our life actually are not the love of God but perhaps the wrath of God. That's the question that's lurking in the background of Romans chapter 8. But whether Christmas may feel like it or not as the most wonderful time of the year, what Romans 8 in tends to do is encourage you that God is bigger and better and more strong and sovereign and more loving from beginning to end than we could ever imagine. That's what Romans 8 is trying to do. So look with me again at the beginning of what is our passage, the last part of Romans 8. I'm going to read 28, 29, and 30 one more time. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified we can get hung up on the theological sounding words like predestination and foreknowledge and justified and glorified many pastors as they would preach these would spend several sermons on each of these verses or perhaps a sermon for each of these phrases maybe we'll do that someday too but for now what I want to say is don't get caught up Before these verses, if you've been in the Christian life for a while now, what I want to say to you is before these verses are controversial doctrines to parse out, these truths ought to be precious. God aims for these verses to encourage you that he has done everything needed so that you will be happy and holy with him forever. Not just happy and not just holy, but happy and holy forever with God and his people. Jesus was the most happy and holy person there's ever been. 
And this passage says that God aims in redemption to make us like Jesus, to be conformed to his image, happy and holy with him forever together as our older brother. God's aim in redemption is to win for himself a happy and holy family of brothers and sisters who dance and sing in their father's love. These verses encourage us that before you ever thought of God, in fact, Romans would say it in chapter five, verse eight, that even while you were an enemy of God, before you ever thought of God, and even when you did start thinking about him, you were his enemy, God was thinking about you. And his thoughts were of love. These verses say all things for good. Not some things or many things, but all things. All things work together for good, Paul writes. For those who are called according to his purpose. Note what Paul does not say. Paul doesn't say God does this generally for everyone in all of humanity. God has done and is doing this beautiful and specific thing for his children, for those who are changed by Jesus. Christian, Jesus, or God loves you with all the intensity that he loves his own son. Now, we're not told how God will work all things for good. Those specifics, we're not told. But he does work all things, the hard things, the evil things, the lonely things, the confusing things, the Lou Gehrig's disease things. And he rules over them in such a way that in the end of everything, they serve our everlasting good. That's what this passage is saying. What the world and the flesh and the devil would design for our harm, God turns for our good. Look closer with me at chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse is saying that if you're a Christian, God tells you he loved you before the world began. And he loved you when he called you. That is, at some specific moment in your life, perhaps he's been doing it right now in this season of our church. I know that across this last year, there are more than a handful of you. He's been calling effectually. He's been reaching into your heart and changing who you are. There have been desires that have been welling up and affections for Jesus and love for his church and desires to serve in the Christian community that were never there before. And when he justified you, he loved you. That is, when Jesus, when God took away your sins through Jesus and he gave you instead the perfections of Jesus, when he justified you, he loved you. And he loved you when he glorified you. It's actually said here in the past tense, those he also glorified to indicate the finality of it, as though it's as good as done. Glorified means that he will raise your bodies from the grave, give you a new body, and make you happy and holy with his people forever. As one pastor has said, there are not enough nails in the coffin to hold you when he calls your name at the end of time. 
So from before the world began to the specific moments of your life, all the way to the end of your life and into eternity, God loves you. This verse has been called the golden chain of salvation. Because you don't get the picture that God is losing people along the way. Like he meant to save them, but he didn't or couldn't. The picture in these verses is not of one who had the desire to save this or that person, but it just didn't work out the way God hoped. It's not the picture. In fact, Jesus says something very similar in the Gospels many times. I'll just give you one of them. Look with me at John chapter 6. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus uses that feeding of the 5,000 as a case study for what it means to hunger and thirst and find satisfaction in Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Skipping over to verse 37. And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks, looks to the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the words in verse 37, coming down. Jesus came down to earth in the Christmas story so that he would be the Savior the Savior of everyone who hungers and thirsts for salvation and finds satisfaction in Him. For those that do that, He will not lose you. Perhaps you've seen people, it's often children, play the relay game with with cups and water. You you start with this empty cup and you run across the backyard and you you get to the bucket at the other end of the backyard and you scoop your cup and you sprint back to the line and you dump your cup into the empty bucket and you hand your cup to someone else and they run and they do the same thing until you win the race and the second bucket is full of water. Now if you go too slow, (laughs) you save more water, right? right? You save a little more water, but if you run too fast and you spill it, that's, that's how this relay game goes. This passage in Romans 8 and this passage in John chapter 6 teaches salvation is not like that relay game. God the Father does his best to save, but spills a few people here and there. Then Jesus takes the cup and does his best, but only to spill a few people here and there. And then the apostles, well, they take the cup, and the apostles were the spokesmen, authorized spokesmen of, of friends of Jesus who, who taught his words and teachings. Their, their words are captured in the New Testament force. Then the apostles take the cup, and they run only to spill a few people here and there. And then the pastors, well, they grab the cup, and other Christians grab the cup, and well, Who knows how much we mess this up. That's not the picture of salvation in Romans 8. That picture would not be encouraging at all. It would be terrifying. The picture instead is of a God who has undertaken salvation in such a way 
that all those who look to Jesus initially and throughout all of their life have bulletproof security. And we come to the second half of the passage. This last part of the passage is cast in a series of seven rhetorical questions and answers. Paul knows these truths that he's just written about need more explanation. Not just explanation, celebration. Because if God is so strong and so loving, how then shall we understand suffering in the life of a Christian? How how do we understand a Christian and the suffering that comes into our lives? And Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions to press these truths into our lives deeper and deeper into our hearts. So here's the first question. Verse 31a, what then shall we say to these things? That's the first of seven. Paul believes the truth of the sturdy, strong, sovereign love of God calls for an emotional reaction on our part. Christians read what Paul is describing here in this passage and we become filled with wonder and awe. All things? Like even the hard things? They work out for my eternal good? That's amazing. When you go to the dentist, you sit in that office before your appointment and you sign all that paperwork. If you actually took time to read all of that fine print and actually if we understood all of the fine print, your emotional reaction to the fine print would not be wonder and awe, right? It's pretty boring. But wonder and awe is what Paul wants to stir here in us as we Listen to the things he has to say. These are unbelievable truths. It's like he's holding our hand as we climb a majestic mountain of salvation. And when we get to the top and he looks out over this panoramic view of salvation from beginning to end, he asks the question, what then should we say to this beautiful view? And then he asks the question, and did you see this? If you look out this direction, you see this. And then don't miss it from this angle too. Here, I'll take the second, third, and fourth questions together. Let me read them. If God is for us, Paul asks, who can be against us? This is a complicated sentence here. I'll try and fill in some of the pronouns to give it a little more explanation. Verse 32. He, that's God, who did not spare his own son, that's Jesus, But God gave him up, Jesus up, for us all, all, us all Christians. How will he, God, not also with him, Jesus, graciously give us Christians all things? That's a question. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can be against us, Paul asks. Well, Lots of people can be against Christians. But that's not Paul's point. Picture a courtroom. Lots and lots of people can bring accusations against someone in a courtroom. But who matters in the end are the judge and the jury. Paul is saying you are, in fact, a sinner 
And people can call you a sinner all day long. But if God has forgiven you, if the judge and jury of the universe has declared you not guilty, then that's what matters most. In 10 years or 20 years, what others say about you matters. It will influence how we live. But in 10 or 20 million years, it's the voice of God that matters most. You can't justify yourself. God is the one who justifies. But if God didn't spare Jesus so that Jesus can forgive our sins, then how will God not also, along with Jesus, give us every spiritual blessing forever? It's a rhetorical question, but it's meant to be a statement, not a question. Because God, by sending his son Jesus, has done the really hard thing in forgiving us and changing sinners, he won't stop loving them. It's like saying, if you did the really hard thing of going down Jonestown Road on Saturday, and you went into the mall, and you bought a present for someone you really love, and you waited in line for like 90 minutes, And then you get back in your car and you drive home down Jonestown Road and you fight the traffic and you get home, you wrap the present, you put it under the tree. How, having done all that hard work, will you not give that present then to the one you love? That's sort of like what Paul's saying here. I'm actually waiting until Monday, so it'll be even harder. Let's look at the fifth rhetorical question. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Again, condemnation language is courtroom language. If Jesus was condemned for your sins and your condemnation was completely dealt with in Jesus, then you have nothing left to fear. Because not only did Jesus die, Paul writes, but he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sits with God. And what does he do while he's in heaven? Does he scowl at you in your sufferings? Is he disappointed with your continual neediness? No. Paul says he intercedes for you. The Son of God prays for you. Put it like this. It's, it's one thing to have a police officer pull you over, give you a ticket, and then, as a Christmas present, tear up that ticket. But then if the offer is still scowling and fuming and, I don't know, belligerent towards you, holding your law-breaking over your head, then you would not feel it like it was very much of a Christmas present. And you certainly want to head back to the office with him and share stories about the other needs in your life. But when Jesus forgives, he invites you into joy. Look at the last questions, questions six and seven. Who shall separate us from the love of God, excuse me, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword The final rhetorical questions ask if anything can separate us from the love of God. And Paul very quickly answers his own question. 
He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'll explain that quote in a moment. And then he explodes into praise. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things in the present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Old Testament reference about sheep being killed all day long comes from a hymn. The people of God sing, Psalm 44. It came into writing and into the scriptures at a time when some questioned whether their trials could coincide with the love of God or whether their trials indicated actually the wrath of God. Paul says no. Just as believers throughout time have felt the sting of suffering, so now believers feel it still. But, he says, there is no sting of suffering. No death, nor ruler, no, nothing in the future that could ever separate us from the love of God. And all this is to God's praise, not ours. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 37. More than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. You can look at it and see it there in verse 37. If you want to, go ahead and put your finger on it. More than conquerors through him who loved us. All the good that God does for Christians is not our doing but God's. When you picture what it looks like to be more than a conqueror, what image comes to your mind? I will tell you, it's not that of Christians standing at the, you know, the, the front lines of a war. As we thump our chests and say, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a warrior. That's not the picture here. Instead, picture a man hooked up to chemotherapy who looks up in the eyes of his wife and says, even if this kills me, it will only bring me to God. When I was growing up, my father had this sort of bedtime liturgy, you could call it. As he would tuck us in, he'd ask, do you know why I love you? And we'd say, no, Dad. And he'd say, because you're my son. I found something comforting about that circular logic. God, why do you love us? I love you because I do. I said this at the start, in the background of this passage, in Romans 8, lurks the fear that God's love can't coincide with our suffering. Either our suffering indicates God no longer loves us or he wants to love us but doesn't quite able to do so. Perhaps those questions are rumbling around in your own heart this season. Perhaps you wonder if your trials are not actually separating you from the love of God. Paul's answer is that Christians may or not feel like Christians or Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. But no matter what Christmas feels like to you, Romans 8 
wants to encourage you that God is bigger and better, stronger and more sovereign and more loving from beginning to end than we could ever imagine. But perhaps there are others here and you only feel this sort of slight interest in Jesus. I'm really glad you're here. Coming to a church, singing songs, hearing the Bible taught, I'm really glad. Maybe for you, you, you kind of think you know something about Jesus. Like Lukeman, you know you should buy a Christmas tree because that's what you should do on Christmas. Maybe even go to church across the holiday weekend. But you don't really know much about Jesus. And you don't really have a vibrant connection to a local church. In fact, you're just hoping you'll begin to figure these things out over time. I would tell you, this passage is for you too, but you might need to become a Christian first to embrace all of the goodness in this passage. I don't know your heart, I don't know your life. I do know that Romans 8 teaches what some have called eternal security. But when God begins to change your life, Romans 8 also teaches that he also sets you on a path of conformity to Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, you don't start to look like Jesus perfectly in his love and compassion. Not perfectly in a day or two. But over a decade or two, he sets you on a path of conformity to his son. And so that those who have this eternal security are also those who are on this path of holiness and happiness, and in Jesus. And so if you're not on this path of holiness and happiness in Jesus, you might not be on the path. But I would love for you to come on. God would love to invite you to embrace the gospel message this morning. In my last sermon a week or two ago, I mentioned there's that classic scene in the cartoon version of the Grinch who stole Christmas. (laughs) I love that movie. I loved it as a kid. That was another tradition, going to my grandparents' house and watching uh, the Grinch who stole Christmas. That scene with with the little dog. What's the dog? I don't even know his name. (laughs) When he sits over the edge of the sled. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Right? There's that line, the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? Romans 8 offers Christians more than a little bit more. And there's that other classic scene, classic to me at least, in the Grinch movie where the Grinch is holding that sled kind of precariously over the edge of the cliff, right? And the narrator says, what happened then? The narrator asks rhetorically, well, In Whoville, they say, that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then, the true meaning of Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. There you go, okay, some of you. (laughs) My hope across this Advent season, and especially this morning as we reach the summit of Romans 8, was that your heart would grow three sizes. As you take in all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. 
knowing that God loves you because if you are in Christ, you are his son and his daughter. And nothing in all of creation can change that. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we have the worship team come back up and close us in song. Lord, as a pastor, it's not lost on me that these verses to many are full of controversy, I understand that. And yet, as I look at the aim of the Apostle Paul in these passages, it seems to me he's giving us hope and encouragement. Lord, I pray we'd spend a lifetime parsing out the details of these verses and wrestling with them and figuring out what they mean for us and for others and for the church and for the world and for the redemption of all things. But I pray that as we do so, we do it with joy. Knowing that in you, we can be more joyful and more triumphant than we could have ever imagined. We pray these things in Christ's name.